Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining today's Family Offices Global episode about longevity. I'm pleased to welcome Reason, founder of Repair Biotechnologies, a preclinical biotechnology company with a mission to treat aging and age-related diseases. Reason, thank you for joining us today. In our Family Offices Global magazine interview, you mentioned that there was no longevity industry when you first became involved in rejuvenation research advocacy in the early 2000s. Please share with us more about how the anti-aging marketplace has evolved over the recent years and what is accelerating its fast growth. So I think the, um, the first thing to understand is that the, the, there, there are confusions of terms here. The, the anti-aging marketplace has been with us since the 70s and is a bunch of people selling a bunch of things that don't work. Um, and their existence and their, their thriving existence has really been why we haven't had a rejuvenation research industry. Um, and uh, people focused on legitimate functional ways to treat aging rather than, you know, skin creams and pills and potions and fraud. Um, despite the fact that the research community has been quite capable of making that leap for perhaps 20 to 30 years. Uh, the, the big changes that took place since the early 2000s to, let's say, you know, 2015 was really um, a, a convincing of the people that mattered that, yes, actually it was possible. Um, it was possible to, for research communities to start doing this without committing career suicide because they looked like they were sponsored by Revlon. Um, and it was possible to do meaningful work. And the, the big sea change here really happened. The thing that really made it possible to have an industry versus a research community was the demonstration in 2011 of rejuvenation in mice by removal of senescent cells. Um, and that really woke everybody up. Um, and it took about another five years after that happened for the first uh, companies working on applications of this platform to clear senescent cells from old tissues to get going. I, I invested in one of the first of those. Um, and they, they're spreading quite rapidly. And they were sort of the core of the early industry. And as soon as somebody proved that you could do that, of course, for one way of addressing um, aging, treating aging as a medical condition, actually doing something that really legitimately is literally rejuvenation um, and not just giving lip service to the term. Uh, then a bunch of other people started saying, well, look at all this stuff that's sitting around the research community that really actually should probably work. We, we should get going on this. Um, and so now we have, you know, in, the, in the course of maybe 2016 to now, uh, I think we have 100 plus companies that have, uh, have launched with a very diverse set of, of approaches to not just clearing senescent cells, but uh, reprogramming cells to be more useful in behavior, trying to repair um, dysfunctional mitochondria, trying to clear out various forms of persistent metabolic gunk that, that clogs up your system and eventually kills you, and so on and so forth. There's a lot that needs to be done, and there's a lot that's happening. It's um, it, It's... In part, this very rapid growth has occurred because we had this long period in which the, the fraudulent anti-aging marketplace caused the research community to be look but don't touch on the matter of aging. The, the leaders of the research community actively discouraged um, interventional research in aging precisely because they did not want to be in any way associated with the, um, 
with the anti-aging skin creams and the fraudulent behavior that took place in that that growing marketplace um, and it took you know advances in the science and an awful lot of patient advocacy and kicking on doors in the first 10 years of this this century to actually go solve this problem and get to the point where the research community felt it could stand up for itself and as soon as that started happening of course then the startups in the biotech industry started flowing and now now we're done it's solved and now we just need to really just grow this industry to become a legitimate fully recognized part of the broader biotech industry and it's very exciting and it's taking place right now Wow, this is uh, very exciting, and I have the honor to interview a real pioneer and expert in this field. Um, to our next question, uh, please tell us more about the new therapy of your company, which you recently founded, Repair Biotechnologies, which brings a new technology to the clinic, and more particularly, how is it reversing atherosclerosis, which is the number one killer in the developed world? Yes, atherosclerosis is a very interesting condition. Um, And in many ways, it shares some aspects with Alzheimer's disease, which I think most people are more, most people are more cognizant of the fact that Alzheimer's disease is is a big challenge and where clinical trials go to fail and enormous sums of money are poured into trying to do something about it and, and are not getting anywhere so far. Um, atherosclerosis has been the same way in many ways, though um, the, the work to date has been graded a success, uh, though it's not a very great success. I'm sure you're aware of uh, statin drugs and blood cholesterol. We've, we've had decades of people having it drummed into them that blood cholesterol is all important and that lowering it is something you have to have to do. Um, and lowering it does indeed postpone your death by atherosclerosis, uh, but only in the sense that, hey, maybe you'll die from cancer first. Uh, it, it's not gonna, it doesn't stop the disease, and that's a big problem, because virtually the entire research community has been focused on, on lowering blood cholesterol as an approach to this condition. And I'll explain why this is. So atherosclerosis is basically the buildup of fatty deposits in your blood vessel walls. And this causes your blood vessels to narrow, which obviously is a big problem because you get less blood going to where you need it to go. That, that's a path to heart failure, for example. But it also causes them to weaken. And eventually you get something, you get some structural failure that causes a blockage or a rupture in a large enough blood vessel to kill you, or you get a stroke or a heart attack. And this kills you know, a tenth to a quarter of everybody, um, which is terrible. And this is despite the fact that, that there's a thriving industry attempting to lower cholesterol. And the reason the lowering cholesterol slows this down is because obviously those fatty lesions in your blood vessels are largely made out of cholesterol and dead cells, and that cholesterol has to come from somewhere. So if you have more cholesterol, um, you, you are on balance going to get atherosclerosis progressing faster, and if you have less on balance, slower. But faster and slower, like, you know, this is a 10-year adjustment either way at the end of your life. This is, this is not a... Um, this is not a you don't get it or you do get it type of thing. Everybody gets it. It's, it's a universal condition. And people in their 40s and 50s, if you're really healthy, guess what? You have the start of atherosclerosis in your blood vessels. It's there, um, growing slowly. The reason that this condition happens when you're older and not younger is that the macrophage cells, a type of immune cell, that are responsible for clearing out the cholesterol from your blood vessels and putting it back into the bloodstream to go back to your liver, 
they really, really cannot deal with oxidized forms of cholesterol. And when you get older, the, you have ever more oxidized molecules in your system because of various other aspects of aging. So these cells go crazy, they become inflammatory, they, they stop doing their jobs and they call for help. Um, and, a, and a fatty lesion in atherosclerosis is really kind of a macrophage graveyard. It's a, it's a feedback process whereby macrophages turn up, attempt to clean up the oxidized cholesterol, fail miserably, call for help, and more macrophages come along. Um, so you can try to like slow this process down by reducing the input of cholesterol, but you can't stop it. And reducing cholesterol to zero can't, st can't stop the plaque growing, the, the lesion from growing, because macrophages will keep turning up to try to deal with the problem, and they will add their corpses to the, um, to the, growing, the growing mess. So this obviously needs a different approach. Um, and, and to a certain extent, the research community has been trying this. They're trying to make macrophages more, more able to actually dig out the cholesterol and throw it back. You can make them more able to consume cholesterol. You can make them more able to hand it off to particles in the bloodstream that carry it back to, uh, to the liver. Um, and all of this works really, really well in mice um, and has failed every time somebody tried to bring it to humans. So there's something we don't understand about the way in which this process works and is different between mice and humans. We bypass this question completely by providing macrophages with a set of enzymes that can break down um, the cholesterol in situ. So we know this will work the same way in mice and humans. It's an entirely novel system. It doesn't normally exist in macrophage cells. So we give, we've, we've done the work of uh, putting this into cells and dishes and putting this into mice, and it works pretty well so far. Um, we're in the process of proving this out, deciding how we're going to deliver it to people. And uh, then hopefully we will do a first in humans, say 2022. Um, and hopefully you know, 15, 20 years from now, there will be no more atherosclerosis in the world. It will be a prevented condition. Fantastic. Uh, what a great and important task and mission you have. This is also a great opportunity to invite our interested investors, listeners to join Repair Biotechnologies Investors Webinar July 8th to learn more. Moving on to the next question, at your leading website in the aging biotech community, Fight Aging, you encourage the development of medical technologies and healthier lifestyles. Please explain how funding startups in this space is a necessary continuation of nonprofit research. So we, we did, um, you know, we, I mean, myself, the Methuselah Foundation, the SENS Research Foundation, which are some of the core um, groups in, in actually working on what is rejuvenation specifically rather than, um, you know, treating age-related diseases by trying to manipulate the disease state at the end of life, which is a little much harder to do and, and really doesn't produce great results. We've been raising non-profit, you know, since the turn of the century or so. Um, and I have to say that, that it's been a tough road um, in the sense that it, it's tough to get people to, to commit to funding research. And we've raised, to our credit, we've raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars over that time and put it into programs in a very, very targeted way um, in order to unblock them to the point where other groups can take them over. It's the case of building the tools where there were no tools, doing the proof of principle where there was no proof of principle, that sort of thing. Um, but as soon as you get to the point where, where you have an industry, and as I mentioned earlier, around about you know, 
2015, things changed to the point where, um, yes, it was possible to raise funds for startups in this space. Uh, and there's been an avalanche since then. But if, if you have a program that's half done, let's say, uh, in the sense that you could go do research in a, in a lab for another couple of years at sort of a sedate um, research community pace, and you would raise nonprofit funding for that or government grants or whatever, uh, frankly, you should just quit all that, start a company and go raise funding because there's so much money out there right now. Um, and the rewards for investors are so much greater in that case. Um, and you finish up your program under the auspices of a biotech startup and get going. And this is a very viable way to go about it. And it's, for the same effort, you can pull in, you know, 10 times the capital for profit that you can um, from grants or, uh, or, or philanthropic funding. And this enables the community to progress so much, so much faster. So almost everything that's been achieved in picking up the programs that were on the verge and carrying them forward to, uh, to actually get to, to meaningful results in the last five years or so has been accomplished by moving the programs out of the research community and into startups. It's the most effective way to get this done. And coincidentally, it also opens the door to allow um, investors to, to obtain you know, the ROI that's going to come from therapies that can be applied to everybody rather than just a few sick people. It's an enormous market. Amazing. As a daughter of a brain research professor at the university, I've noticed this disconnect between the academy world and the business world. And it's great that you're helping to bridge this gap. Uh, thank you for that. To our next question, uh, what in your opinion are the investment implications and opportunities of the fact that life expectancy is much longer and younger people can expect to live beyond 120 years? So I think the obvious one here is, is that um, a market that serves every human being much over the age of 40 is going to be a ridiculously huge market in which you could have dozens of companies sloshing around without bumping into each other and the, the expectation value of startups in this space is amazing compared to your average old school biotech that was doing something uh, more yesterday. So I, I think there's, there's a, a tremendous sense of, wow, this is going to be huge legitimately. Um, and the ROI is going to be amazing legitimately. But ultimately, the, the most important thing that's going to come out of this for all of us, I think, um, is a more subtle thing. Um, but like subtle things, it will grow to be the most important aspect of this over time. There's a, very, there's a sort of very interesting research that, that looks at what happened in the United Kingdom prior to the Industrial Revolution uh, in attempt to answer the question, why did the Industrial Revolution happen in, in England um, and not France or you know, any other random country in the world? And interestingly, for the century or so before that happened, um, life expectancy had been rising very incrementally, but at the same time, so was wealth. And there's, there's a, lot of, um, a lot of interesting thought you can put into that in terms of, okay, if you're living longer, you're taking better stewardship of the property that you own, which in this case was primarily land, because at that point in time, you know, land was the dominant, um, the dominant resource uh, for those who owned things. Um, and you steward the land better 
if your, if your time horizon is longer. So you have this process whereby for a century or a century and a half prior to the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom, people's time value of money was changing um, incrementally over time, percentage points year over year, but changing in a way that, that pushed this country ahead in terms of the feedback loop of investment and value and, um, and the rest of this. Uh, and the result was the Industrial Revolution. Um, a sudden tremendous phase shift, um, an exponential change in wealth that happened once things got to a certain level of, of you know, growing, growing uh, societal wealth and individual wealth. And we're going to see this happen again, I think, in some way, shape or form over the next century. Many of us will live to see the end of this. There's going to be a big disconnect, a big, huge jump in life expectancy coming up as soon as the first rejuvenation therapies that, by the way, already exist, senolytic drugs, um, as soon as they're widely used, we will see a five to 10 year jump in life expectancy across the board. These things are cheap, they work. Uh, and at that point, one has to say, okay, what does this do to the time value of money as people start to realize, wait, I'm not actually going to die at the same schedule as my grandparents. I don't actually have a lifespan of 80 years. I have a lifespan of 100 years or in 90 years or whatever it turns out to be. But that, this is in, in, across a population, this is a huge difference. Um, and we're going to see very, very big differences in how people structure their investments, what they think of in terms of what the time horizons of their investments are, and what returns are going to look like over that time. Um, it will be very, very interesting, I think, and possibly the dominant trend of the next century. Great. These are definitely exciting news for the investors, especially for first generation's wealth. Uh, now I'd like to wrap up and thank, uh, thank Reason for um, being on our podcast today. And thank you, everyone who listened to our Family Offices Global episode. I hope you enjoy our, our discussion and feel free to contact us info at thefamilyaffsesglobal.com to follow us on our LinkedIn page. And we look forward to seeing you at the next episode. Goodbye.